Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, we are going to talk about uh, a book called After Marx, Literature, Theory, and Value in the 20th Century. It's an edited collection of books. So first, I'll be talking to the editors, and then I'll be to stay with us after uh, the first part of the interview, because we'll be talking to a number of the contributors as well. So to start this uh, uh, podcast, I'm glad that uh, we are joined by Dr. Colin uh, she's an associate professor of English at University of California, Berkeley, and Dr. Christopher Nealon, who is a professor of English at John Hopkins University. They created this beautiful book uh, with a number of articles on different aspects of uh, literary theory, Marxist literary theory in 20th century, which is completely different from the classical literary theory, Marxist literary theory that we're all familiar with. Um, Colin and Christopher, welcome to New Books Network. Hi, thank you for having us. Uh, pleased to be here. Um, I'll just start by uh, saying I'm a professor in the English department at UC Berkeley, and I teach critical theory and Asian American studies here at Berkeley, and I'm happy to be on the program. Uh, Nilan, you want to also introduce yourself briefly, and then we'll talk about how you decided to put this book together and why. Sure, yeah. Um... Thanks, Morteza. I also, um, as you mentioned, I teach uh, in the English department at Johns Hopkins University. Um, I teach uh, poetry and poetics um, and the history of some of the um, ideas that have sprung up around poetry and poetics, so a little bit of intellectual history alongside those things. It's great to be here. Uh, So recently, there has been a lot of interest in Marx and Marxism in the past at least in the past 10 years. And uh, this was a great book when I came across it, After Marx, Literature, Theory, and Value in the 20th Century. So to start with, can you tell us how the idea of this book um, uh, came to you and why you decided to put this edited collection of articles together? Um, Let me back up a little bit by um, 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 getting to how this book came about. Um, uh, So... I would say that the book, to give you a bit of a biographical answer, the book came about as a result of a kind of inter and intragenerational conversation that originated at Berkeley um, from starting from around the time that I first started teaching here. Uh, Chris and I met here actually as assistant professors when we were hired around the same time in the late 1990s and found that we had um, shared a great deal of parallel interests, um, even though our training took place in different graduate schools. And those parallel interests had some kind of foundational similarities, partly because um, we're exactly the same age, as it turns out. Um, and we're both Gen Xs, which meant that we were born in the late 60s, came of age in the early to mid 80s. Um, and therefore, I think a part of a kind of post-60s generation when we went to college and then to graduate school. But it's also the product of an intergenerational conversation because so much uh, of the book is about being taught by our students. Um, 
in the course of the last 20 years since I've been teaching, the increasing privatization of public higher education and the corporatization of the university has meant that our PhD students are at the front lines of always having to choose between alienated labor, increasingly alienated labor because of the corporatization of the university and unemployment, um, neither of which are great, right? So working with them and thinking with them has made it almost impossible to put the material conditions of thought and artistic creation out of our minds as we write and teach. So I would say it's my pedagogical experience that's moved me toward Marxism over the years since I started out teaching here. And so when the idea of this book was put forward to me by uh, Cambridge University Press, I immediately thought of Chris as a fantastic co-editor to work with and thinking through what Marxism, what Marxist literary criticism might offer today, as well as to invite many people who we uh, were our for- who were our former students. And that explains, I think, why so many of the contributors to the volume are um mostly younger thinkers uh, who we really wanted to feature, um, but also uh, a few peers from our generation who were the most influential in getting us to think about um, value theory in Marxism, as well as thinking about Marxism's relevance to areas outside Euro-American experience, specifically in the former Soviet Union, China, and Latin America. Yeah, great. And... um... Can you tell us how, when, when we talk about classic literary Marxism, so Terry Eagleton is a name that comes to our mind, but can you tell us how this book, generally speaking, how does it uh, represent a shift from that classic Marxist literary theory? Sure. I mean, one of the things that we began to feel was that the most prominent forms of Marxist literary criticism predating us and extending pretty far back into the early 20th century Um, looked really different than the kinds of conversations we were having with colleagues and with students, especially after the 2008 financial crash and after the struggles around austerity measures being taken um, in universities around North America. And those conversations had a lot to do with um, the production of value in Marx. And so many of the people having those conversations worked in the arts or humanities, and we were trying to figure out connections between those things. But as we did so, Going back into the archive of Marxist literary criticism, we saw things like um, you know, early 20th century focus primarily on working class literature, championing it, arguing for its literary merit, um, pushing back against negative representations of the working classes in classic literary texts. Things that now would seem very basic and topical, but which, of course, were important at the time. Later, you know, by mid-century, and especially in and around the kind of period of 60s radicalization that Colleen was mentioning, there's a sort of more theoretically sophisticated Marxist literary criticism that springs up. But it's very focused on um, the question of ideology in particular. Um, And whereas the kind of class-focused Marxist literary criticism in an earlier day was uh, very topically focused, this was very structurally focused and treated literary texts as structures, often autonomous structures, standing alone, um, whose uh, interstices and internal contradictions could be probed um, and identify it as ideological or as sometimes hiding uh, um, a certain kind of utopian promise. Um, But that was um, not quite the conversation that we were having. And what we found is we began to sort of probe more deeply into the history of thinking about Marxist theory of value, that um, the production of surplus value and what's required to make surplus value possible um, in the history of capitalism opens doors towards other ways of thinking about what a text might be, what it might disclose, how it could be read alongside other texts. 
Um, and so that was the shift in emphasis for us, broadly speaking, from uh, away from a focus on class and ideology to um, a focus on the question of value. Um, and it's interesting because in your introduction, you provide this excellent background to what brought about this shift. And you talk about a number of different uh, important ideas. You discuss Robert uh, Brenner's idea of the long downturn. You talk about uh, disindustrialization and declining, which, which which you briefly touched upon, Colleen. And then you talk about the late uh, phenomenon that the late uh, Mike Davis called the planet of slums. So I know it's a broad question. So it would be great if you could both try to cover these things. I, cause I'm really interested. I'm sure our listeners are really interested to know what brought about this shift, this change. Thanks for that question. Um, I think you've just named some of the very key thinkers who have come into the foreground. Um, um, and, you know, they've come into the foreground over time, not just since um, 2008, which we flag as an important turning point as a result of the Great Recession, uh, bringing into greater consciousness um, a critical view of capitalism, uh, or even the word capitalism being a thing that people say, right, uh, as, as, a, as a real system dominating our lives. Um, uh, uh, Robert Brenner's um, term, The Long Downturn, um, was first comes about in 1998, as a result of an essay he publishes in New Left Review called Uneven Development and the Long Downturn. And why 1998? Because that's one year after the Asian financial crisis, um, where uh, you start to see the long boom of the 80s with its kind of dot-com frenzy being punctured by the currency crisis in Asia. Get revised in 2005, the book. Um, sorry, the un, the essay that's called Uneven Development in the Long Downturn, published in New Left Review, also appears as a book called The Economics of Global Turbulence. That's the long version of that essay, also published in 1998. And it gets revised in 2005. Why 2005? Because that's after the subprime crisis, when the Asian financial crisis spreads to the US stock market plunge, the dot-com plunge in 2000. And by the time you get 2005, it's the subprime crisis. And then um, it gets yet another sequel um, um, after the 2008 uh, um, uh, Great Recession with uh, an essay he, uh, that he publishes called, called What's Good for Goldman Sachs is Good for America. And my point to all this is that throughout this period of repeated reassertions of the long downturn as a period that begins in 1973 up to the present, the end point of that period keeps shifting forward into the present. So it seems, but the beginning point doesn't shift. So the salience of 1973 being a turning point in history where capitalism seems to be encountering crises of accumulation that it cannot overcome, despite bourgeois economics' theory of business boom and bust cycles in which there's always a kind of recovery, there's a way in which Marxian criticism has come back, um, despite the fact that in the 60s, um, to return in a way to your earlier question, in the 60s, the revival of Marxism represented a, a departure from Marx's theory of value, thinking that basically the theory of value part of Marx was no longer salient. We can abandon that. And in some ways, post-Marxism represented this kind of emphasis on cultural aspects of Marxism, dispensing with the economic aspects of Marxism. But the continuing um, downturn that we've been in has brought back the economic Marx. Now, the result of that is that there's a new attention to Marxism, both by Marxian economics, uh, economists who take Marxist political economy seriously, 
But on the other side, Marxist social theorists and Marxist philosophers who read Marx to be offering a critique of political economy. Um, so what you've just described in terms of the historical features that we provide as a context for the return to Marxian value theory might be understood as sort of mid-level or empirical or measurable phenomenon of the truth of Marx's law of value, right, which have to do with deindustrialization, a declining wage, planet of the slums, persistent economic stagnation, financial crises, speculative activity as, a, as something that cannot answer to the fundamentals of a falling rate of profit. All these things are measurable. But deep down, there's also this other thing going on in the return to Marx, which is his value theory, which sits in some critical tension with whether or not there can be measurable or empirical phenomenon um, regarding the theory of value. And that's where in some ways there's an opening for humanists to get involved in the conversation as well. Um, I hope that kind of answers your question. Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. So perfect. Is there anything else, uh, Christopher, you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, I uh, love the way, as I always do, Colleen um, is so able to answer a question like that and give so much information to your listeners. I think that um, I would add perhaps that you could think of some of the things that Colleen identified in um, a sort of like everyday vernacular too, like these crises raise the question for Marxists and non-Marxists alike um, of what capitalism really is and <laughs> how it manages to continue, um, whether it can or can't overcome these crises. You know, I mean, you saw the word capitalism not more and more in the academy, but in the New York Times and the in Wall Street Journal, they had to start to name they're the water that they swam in for a little while. Um, and so that perplexity about what kind of animal capitalism really was leads sort of, um, not just sort of the question of the emergence um, of a working class historically, which all kinds of people besides Marx kept track of and followed and had theories of, or not necessarily just to the question of ideology, which is how does this crazy system continue to justify itself or try to convince people that it's worth pursuing or participating in, but to the question of the actual mechanics of how capital survives and comes back from the dead, so to speak, over and over and over again. And in order to do that, you've got to think about Marx's theory of value, um, if you want to take Marx seriously. And... Uh... When you were answering this question, Colin, you you talked briefly about 1960s. Can you tell us uh, what led to the rise of the new left and what was his main focus, especially in the last quarter of 20th century? Um, yeah, um, so that's a big question. And many books have been written about the new left. So I'm going to try to hone in on um, the most salient aspects of that history for uh, uh, our project. Um so there are many elements and phases, right, to the new left, but usually it's divided into an early phase and a late phase, with the dividing line uh, being 1966. Why 1966? That's the establishment of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, or the start of the Cultural Revolution in China. Um, depending on whether it's a liberal or radical recounting of that shift from the early to the late new left, the post-66 era represents a degeneration from, say, um, Martin Luther King's nonviolence into the uh, espousal of um, by any means necessary or violence uh, by Stokely Carmichael, Black Power, um, third world return, the third worldist returns to Marxist Leninism, espousing, espousing um, uh, Chinese or Vietnamese rights to 
militant self-defense against U.S. imperial aggression, right? Um, now, taking a longer view regarding that shift from the early new left to the late new left, we could say analytically it represents a point at which the contradictions of democratic liberalism and state capitalism, including in the socialist world, are being challenged by insurgent groups. That is, the impossibility of a civil rights expansion along legislative or electoral lines within the U.S., for example. Uh, uh, you know, 1968, right? Famously, um, the assassination of Martin Luther King, uh, Robert Kennedy, um, um, the great proletarian cultural revolution itself now increasingly being understood in China as a period in which um, Chinese Red Guards, youth in uh, high schools and in colleges, um, felt the limits of a bureaucratic socialism, a bureaucratic party socialism that was not truly making good on um, a classless society that had been promised by the 1949 revolution in China. Um, so where our project comes into play is taking seriously the late new left turn towards Marxist Leninism throughout the world, whether in, in Euro-America, um, places like the Bay Area with the Black Panther Party, um, um, reading Mao and Cabral and Fanon, or Paris, where global Maoism also had its effect on French theory, um, or elsewhere, um, outside your America. Um, but, uh, and seeing this as a period in which the late new left represented a serious reassessment of Marx as well. It wasn't simply a kind of, the new left is often represented as a discarding of the old left, a discarding of the Communist Party and a turn towards something else that was not at all Marxist. I think our narrative is actually interested in seeing the new left as another stage in Marxism. Um, now, for a long time, under the sign of French theory, it was understood as a kind of post-Marxism. But notice that in even calling itself post-Marxist, it's retaining the term Marxist, right? So it's a rereading, you could say in France, it's Althusser and his circle rereading Marxist um, um, capital um, and all the students who were in that circle also having an immense influence of what came to be called post-Marxism in the 1980s. Um, our attempt to rethink Marxist literary theory after 2008 is, is not just a, a shift away from the new left's version of Marxism, but also a reassessment of the meaning of that return to Marxism in that period. Uh, that, that was an excellent answer. Uh, Christopher, would you like to add? I have another question, which is not in the book. It just popped up in my mind when you were speaking about this. This new left, you know, in literary, in academia, we had the rise of cultural studies. And then again, in the past maybe 10 years, there's this shift towards post-critique but again, it's met with backlash in academia. I know people like, uh, I think, Robert Talley, or they've written books about, I think a book came out a couple of months ago, Ruthless Critique of Everything. So a lot of people are kind of against this idea of getting over these, these hermeneutics of suspicion. But I'm, I'm kind of curious to know what you think, where you stand on this, because uh, a lot of people tend to think of post-criticism, or post-critique as a departure from that negativity that has, let's say, haunted critical theory. 
Yeah, that's such a great question. I think that I, I um, could try to answer in a very schematic way, but I think that um, it's possible to say with support from texts, but it's possible to say here on a podcast that the negativity that post-critical postures lay at the feet of what they often call critical theory, um, by which I think they finally mean some version of Marxism, is more apt a description of the kinds of post-structuralism with which post-critique shares a family tree than it is with Marxism itself. That is to say, um, there needs always, of course, to be something affirmative in Marxism. Even if what you're talking about is the abolition of the class that leads the revolution, whatever you decide that that class might be or a combination of classes that (laughs) medley might be, um, a better world needs to be imagined to be possible. Um, something affirmative needs to take place. Now, of course, there are strands within Marxism. Adorno is a really good example of um, someone trying to think really hard with Marx, but uh, eschew the affirmative. Um, and that, to be fair, is an example of a kind of Marxism that um, sits in the crosshairs of the post-critical uh, vocabulary and the post-critical project, I suppose. But by and large, it's the post-structuralisms uh, of the 60s, 70s, and 80s that um, stick to the endless play of one kind of negativity or another, um, partly because they've seen the defeat of traditional working class movements and after the euphoria of imagining that others besides the proletariat, students, decolonized subjects, might take up the burden and overthrow capital, um, seeing that that didn't happen because colonial uh, societies developed in-house elites or students needed to get jobs. <laughs> you know, various um, potential replacements for the quote-unquote working classes were, were derailed or domesticated. Um, and that's the political context in which a kind of endless negativity and knowingness, if you want to think about a tone, um, emerges in a variety of post-structuralist vocabularies. Um, and what that does is kind of displace um, a variety of Marxist analyses, including perhaps some of the um, more mechanical ones, but Marxist analyses that at least kept in view the possibility of the world being otherwise. So, you know, back of your question, it is interesting that in the, in the North American scene, um, it is um, even more than 10 years ago, probably Adorno over Walter Benjamin, who's seen as the friendliest Marxist to non-Marxists. Um, partly because he's not affirming anything, I think, and because his pessimism suits the moment. Um, so that's my best attempt to answer your question, but it's kind of a, a little bit of a mismatch. What's laid at the feet of Marxism is actually something that um, belongs a little bit more to the post-structuralisms that in their celebration of play are actually quite close to the celebration of appreciation in post-critical studies. Though post-critical studies also has its bone to pick with the deconstructionists as well, because their knowingness is something that the Pleasure seekers of the post-critical turn um, also find objectionable, but I think they share more with those post-structuralists than perhaps they would like to admit, because Mar- Marxism is an easier target. And when I was reading Laurent Berlant's book *Cruel Optimism*, it's it's still filled with pessimism and negativity in a way, and it's still considered to be a part of that whole post-critique. Uh, I don't know if movement is the right term. But let's get back to the book again. Uh, in the book, you talk about uh, Marth- uh, Al- Althusser, Althusser who, um, Althusser's idea that scientific Mars is replaced by a Hegelian one. Can you talk about this? What does this mean? And how does this impact, or how did this impact literary studies? 
Yeah, well, I'm going to take up this portion of this question just for a moment. I realize I was just speaking for a little bit, but I think in the in the in the moment of the consolidation of Althusser's intellectual reputation in France, um, the the Marxism that he's looking at, the Marxism of the French Communist Party, is still so much in the gravitational field of Soviet communism um, that. Um, a scientific Marx is meant to be an antidote to a Marxism that is a little bit triumphalist. We won. We won a proletarian revolution. We've achieved phase one of the end or the beginning of history. Um, it's a Marxism that for Althusser is, um, you know, I'll use the word that everybody uses, teleological. It presumes a certain ending that's predictable and partly achieved, perhaps. Um, it's self-congratulatory. It can be circular. Um, and that is what a lot of readers, not all, but a lot of readers um, of portions of Hegel took Hegel to be uh, ending up in philosophically uh, and providing a backdrop or a, um, a set of philosophical credentials to this way of thinking about the victory of communism over capitalism against those self-congratulatory presumptions of either actual or eventual political victory. Um, Althusser um, wanted to uh, assess the situation more coolly. <laughs> uh, and he had a per- particular way of doing that, which was about the intellectual disciplines, the intellectual division of labor between the sciences and the non-sciences. Um, and he thought of Marx as a scientist in a very particular way um, because of what he thought Marx thought knowledge was and how you could test knowledge. So there's a kind of like intellectual meaning about the division of labor in the university um, and a kind of reclaiming of scientific um, method or accuracy to the humanities or specifically to philosophy. Uh, but there's also a political meaning, which is kind of rescuing Marxism from Soviet style self-congratulation and triumphalism. Um, now, there's a, there's a question in the background, which is, um, is that really what Hegel's all about? And that's a different podcast. Um, but in very brief, you know, before we close out our conversation today, I suspect we're going to end up talking a little bit about the category, the very Hegelian category of totality and how that mattered uh, to Marxist theory in the 90s and how it continues to matter um, for the younger generation that Colleen was describing at the beginning of our chat. Uh, how about Frederick Jameson? How did he emphasize the German Marxist tradition of thinking about art and literature? Yes. Well, you know, Jameson, I'm so glad you brought him up, was from early on quite unique uh, as an American literary critic who read widely across German and French Marxist traditions. I think that's ex- partly explains his originality and his staying power. Um, you can see this hybridization most clearly maybe in uh, his um, you know, landmark work, The Political Unconscious, which was published in 1982, which we all read in the 1980s and continued to be a book that was read and taught for many years after. And in this book, Jameson hybridizes Althusser and Lukács, a foundational figure in the German uh, tradition of the Frankfurt School, to arrive at a kind of uniquely Marxist psychoanalytic synthesis um, that helped to make Althusser's idea of symptomatic reading the defining method of Marxist literary criticism for a generation. Now, um, from a post-2008 perspective, we think it's become increasingly clear that there's that, that is not the only one uh, and not the only way to do Marxist literary criticism. 
um, although that was the defining way to do it for so long. Um, and but and not only that uh, is it clear that that's not the only way to do Marxist literary criticism. It's also possible to historicize why from 1982 to 2008 it may have seemed like the only way to do it. And that's because Marxists themselves, along with everyone else, and when I say Marxists themselves, I mean Jameson, for example, had conceded that there was no alternative to capitalism. This sort of goes hand in hand with what um, Chris was saying earlier, that history could only be dreamt of by tapping into our unconscious. That's why Jameson writes this famous essay on postmodernism, right, that became that book on postmodernism, that it's the end of history. In some ways, he admitted that, you know, he thought it was the end of history. History was no longer something at that time that we could make happen or affect. Um, So, but... um, now, I think what's different is not that we necessarily have necessarily have a clear alternative to capitalism, but we think that there must be one. And I think that's an important difference. In other words, in 1982, in 1989, etc., Tina meant not just that there was no realizable po- political alternative to capitalism, but that the tried and true alternatives were worse. They were totalitarian. And that's why so many of the French Maoists from the 60s period became new philosophers and writists, or at best humanitarians, founding Doctors Without Borders. On the other hand, though symptomatic reading was the defining Marxist uh, literary critical approach, which I think we have alternatives to, which is to say that we can look at the literary text in ways other than that it gives us Uh, a symptom of how history is something that we dimly or unconsciously remember, Um, that the the way history hurts is something that only is a knowledge that we only have unconsciously that is recorded in literature and art. On the other hand, Jameson did preserve, I think, through these dark times for Marxist theory, the concept of totality. And this is something that we learned We just even learned that word through Jameson. Um, He taught us through his essay on cognitive mapping, for example, that totality is something to which one must aspire to to grasp, even though it may be impossible because capitalism is totalizing. Capitalism itself has a thirst to totalize the world, to grow endlessly, to globalize, and to subsume everything under the logic of value. Now, Jameson, borrowing from Althusser, took the stance that cognitively grasping this was impossible. It's not something that we could do. And you could say that what's different about what we emphasize is not so much uh, an entirely, uh, like a total negation of that position, of the impossibility of the aspiration to totalization, but we're just emphasizing in a way a different side of the coin, which is the kind of positivity in a way I think that Chris was referring to earlier, which is that there are all these different ways in which we might be able to register that our actions, our creative acts, our representations are constantly ways of connecting part to the whole, part and whole. How, do, how, does, how does this um, minute, you know, minute act connect and give me a glimpse of the whole? It's, it's sort of emphasizing the other side of the coin. And um, as a final question, it would be good to get um, both your views on that. You you talk about the dialogic gap, which 
led to a series of crises that reactivated, let's say, or uh, brought back Marxist literary study. Can you tell us what that theological gap is? Sure. I mean, I think you're referring to a place in the introduction to the volume that Colleen and I wrote that um, describes a situation, you know, 10 years ago where it seemed that unlike literary studies, sociology, um, certain kinds of dissident or, you know, specifically Marxist economics, other disciplines had done maybe more to keep alive a certain analysis of political economy outside economics per se, outside mainstream economics per se, whereas literary study for some other reasons that Colleen has described, you know, had let that, had let that go. Um, and so that gap was just like inside the academy, um, felt as we had catching up to do, (laughs) um, and, you know, for, um, for some of the reasons that Colleen was describing about the question of totality, the relationship between part and whole, that's where the vulnerability of capitalism to crisis, but also its ability to rebound from crisis and at what cost began to raise the question of sort of like the qualitative aspect um, of a totality. You know, um, he gave us so much and kept that flame alive, Jameson, but as Colleen was saying, you know, there tended to be what I would think of as an almost Kantian position around capitalist productivity. It's gotten so advanced, said the Jameson of the 1980s, it can do so much with so many machines so fast. This is before even there was an internet that there would be no way to know all the things that it does. Whereas um, the stumblings and the shocks and the reverberations, that age of turbulence that Brenner was describing, begin to make you feel a different locution than we can never know all the things that capitalism does. And it's more like, um, how much could we do with all the things we are beginning to be able to know and see about capitalism? When it begins to fracture or break, when a tipping point emerges, one kind here, one kind there, um, people... Um, prove themselves to be really able connectors of dots. And the question becomes more like, well, how do we boost that um, kind of collective cognitive ability to, to, to see more than the, um, than the defeated pessimists of the 1980s thought we were able to see? <laughs> um, and that, that's where the quantitative and the qualitative kind of, kind of meet. You know, subway fares go up by, I don't know what, two cents in Chile and the the Chilean state almost topples or the retirement age in France goes up by two years and the government shakes to its foundations. There's this intimate relationship between the qualitative and the quantitative that you have to be able to think holistically about um, to make sense of. But I think we can make sense of it. And that's what begins to feel freshly possible. And that's what led us to um, pull these thinkers together for this volume. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Colleen? Um, I think Chris said it really beautifully. I think the only thing I would um, add um, on top of that is that another way to think of it is how can literary criticism today aid activism? Uh, Not just be service learning for NGOs, uh, connecting to established um, policy think tanks, which we know, you know, have a pretty um, mainstream relation to uh, the uh, status quo. But how can literature aid activism, of which there is such a great resurgence? So before we say goodbye to our guests, I'd like to emphasize again, so stay with us, so listeners, because we're going to be talking about poetry and revolution, Marx and cinema, racial capitalism. So we do talk about a little bit about how Marxism can maybe help um, activism as well. Uh, Christopher and Colin, thank you very much for being on New Books Network and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you so much, Marteza. Thank you. 
For our next guest, I'm uh, honored to be talking to Professor Nikhil Pal Singh. He's a professor of uh, social and cultural analysis and history at New York University. He's also faculty director at New York University Prison Education Program. And he'll be talking to us about uh, his contribution to this book uh, called Black Marxism and uh, Antinomies of Racial Capitalism. Nikhil, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, to start with, can you please tell us uh, a little about racial capitalism? What do you mean by this term? And uh, it's a term that Cedric Robinson also defined, but you take a different, uh, let's say, stance to this uh, concept. Can you tell us a little about that? Sure. Racial capitalism is a term that was popularized by Cedric Robinson's book, uh, Black Marxism, The Making of the Black Radical Tradition. Um, which is a very important book and which I do spend some time thinking about in the article. Uh, the way I depart from Robinson is I am trying to think of racial capitalism more as a, a, a problematic or as a kind of problem space. Uh, how do we think about the relationship between racism and capitalism? Uh, the term racial capitalism has now become widely used independently of Robinson's own particular formulation. So I try to think about the currency of the term and what kinds of theoretical and political questions it tries to index. And and when it comes to the idea of race, what are the limitations of Marxism for understanding or exploring uh, racism, engaging with that idea? Well, to go to, to kind of continue the, to answer the question about what is racial capitalism, insofar as racial capitalism names a problem, it, it, it names the problem of racism within capitalism. How do we understand the problem of racism within capitalism? Uh, is racism uh, simply uh, an artifact of uh, class rule and class division and class exploitation, or does racism have other roots and, and sources that give it a, a relative autonomy or independence from processes of class formation and class structure? Um, so depending how we answer that question, we're going to uh, end up in very different places or somewhat different places, at least politically. So in the arguments that uh, African-American and Black radical thinkers have had over several generations about uh, racial exploits, racial uh, domination, uh, they have considered this question. Uh, They have considered whether racial racial domination is is an artifact of or an outgrowth of class exploitation or whether it has its own independent sources. And in that sense, uh, I'm exploring that kind of question through this uh, piece, uh, giving a kind of intellectual genealogy of a number of different accounts or answers to that question from within the Black radical tradition. And I guess this is a good point for me to kind of ask the next question about this genealogy, because you, in the article, you engage with the idea of several thinkers, Dubois, you have C.L.R. James, and then Stuart Hall. And I know it's a terribly broad question, but uh, just to give our listeners a sense of that trajectory, could you please tell us how you tackle these different thinkers? Yes. So, so I, I don't know if I can talk in detail about every thinker, but the, the thinkers I selected for this article are all thinkers who are trying to uh, understand this relationship. Uh, 
the 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 place of racism within capitalism uh and the, more specifically the question of how do you organize black struggles within capitalism uh should black struggles within capitalism be understood in terms of the broad struggle of the working class or should black struggles in capitalism uh, be understood as uh independent struggles of black people for recognition, self-determination, potentially independent nationhood. Uh, in other words, more along the trajectory that we associate with anti-colonial struggles. So in many ways, the thinkers that I am um, uh, considering in this article, beginning with uh, Du Bois and James, are uh, grappling with this question at a very formative moment. They're grappling, grappling with this question at a moment in which workers' movements within the West are attaining a new uh, sense of collective um, uh, uh, reach, scope, and power. And they are, they're asking this question in a moment in which uh, colonialism, Western colonialism, is entering into a period of crisis and decomposition. Uh, so the question of where black struggles, particularly black struggles within the West or black struggles within the United States, which is something that my own work focuses on, uh, th this question is going to be a very kind of powerful and important one and one that's not going to be easy to resolve. And there's not going to be clear agreement um, on, on, on which way black struggles should go. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to suggest in this piece, but by thinking about racial capitalism as a problem space, that black Marxists or people who think of themselves as interested in Marxism are not necessarily going to agree uh, on their answer to this question. Some are going to edge towards the idea that black autonomy should be emphasized. Others are going to edge towards the idea that race shouldn't be a factor and that black people should just be part of a working, a broad working class struggle. And we've seen how that oscillation has continued into our time, right? So in many ways, a figure like Stuart Hall or even a figure like Cedric Robinson, and in, in some ways their pairing is like the pairing of James and Du Bois, I mean, uh, James and Du Bois uh, much later, but they're having a similar kind of conversation. What is the, pl what is the place of black struggle uh, in the 1970s and 1980s in the period in which capitalism is being reorganized along neoliberal lines? Should black struggles be part of a resurgent workers' movement, or are black struggles better understood as a as a particular struggle for either integration or identity or self determination within the nation state? Uh, and so this is a kind of problem that never goes away is part of what I'm saying, um, and it, and that's why I talk about the antinomies of racial capitalism. Uh, because racial capitalism is one of these uh, terms that can be read in many different ways. It can be read to say that the main problem with capitalism is that it's racist, in which case all we, all we need is to produce a non-racial capitalism and we'll be fine. Um, or it could be read to say that capitalism itself is irredeemably racist which is to say capitalism produces the structures of racial differentiation, and therefore you can't just deal with uh, uh, anti-capitalist struggle in class terms. You have to also deal with these other dimensions of domination that have emerged within the history of capitalism, most formidably racial domination. Uh, and I guess what you said is even more important in the lights of more recent movements such as 
Black Lives Matter, whether there was a racial component to it or is it uh, or, or economic component. Uh, and you you have worked uh, with people who have been incarcerated and you see this racism and capitalism as being intertwined in this mass incarceration. So uh, can you talk a little about that aspect of uh, this part of the article as well? Yeah, well, the piece ends by suggesting that some of the most interesting uh, thinkers of black radicalism or black Marxism or racial capitalism in the current moment have been thinkers who have been looking at the problem of mass incarceration. And I, I, I look most notably at the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, who's a contemporary scholar and who also was, was in, in many ways a student of Stuart Hall and, and Cedric Robinson, not formally, but she, she, she comes from that, uh, that ge- same genealogy that I'm interested in tracing in the piece. And one of the things that Gilmore's work really shows is that you, you can't think of mass incarceration as exclusively a racial question uh, because mass incarceration is part of the recomposition of, 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 of the working class. But at the same time, a traditional Marxist analysis would not necessarily understand mass incarceration in terms of class formation and class politics, because the people who are locked up are mostly people who are not working. They're mostly people who have been expelled from the labor market. So if you kind of think about uh, class purely in terms of wage labor, and purely in terms of um, kind of normative structures of work, you miss certain aspects of how class itself is a dynamic process, that class itself is being organized and reorganized in different ways and segmented and divided in different ways between those who have access to a wage and those who don't have access to a wage. And in some ways, the black Marxists have been more attuned to, to that aspect of capitalism oftentimes than have been more traditional Marxists. Um, and so that's one of the things I try to explore at the end. And in some ways, I try to think of a, of a position that is neither the position that says uh, the problem with capitalism is simply racist or, and, the, and therefore that we can get to a non-racial capitalism, um, but more towards the position that suggests that, that, that race, racism and capitalism are these kind of co-evil braided processes that work together and that they're not that easy to separate, but there's a dynamic aspect to it. So that you have to kind of go to history uh, of specific social formations in order to understand how that relationship is being articulated at any given moment. Uh, Professor Singh, thank you very much for uh, giving us your time and sharing your thoughts with us on New Books Network. Very happy to do so. Thank you for your questions and your interest in the book. For our next guest, we are honored to have Dr. Mark Steven with us. Uh, Dr. Mark Steven is a senior lecturer in the 20th and 21st century literature at the University of Exeter, and he's here to talk to us about his contribution to this book, a chapter called Screening Insurrection, Marx, Cinema, and Revolution. Um, Mark, welcome uh, to New Books Network. Hey there, thank you for having me. It's it's wonderful to be talk to be to be talking back to my home country, Australia, from here on the the, the rainy fascist island that is Great Britain. <laughs> thank you very much for being here, and uh, let's. And it's a fascinating uh, chapter: Marx, cinema, and revolution. So to start with, can you talk about uh, 
the Russian cinema after 1917 and how it was used to organize workers and revolutionaries. And it would be great if you could give us some examples for movies as well. Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll do my best at least. So one of the most, at least one of the, the, the things that film studies like to, film studies people like to talk about is a great line from Vladimir Lenin, the one of, one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution and the, the, the head of the Socialist Republic in Russia, who, um, who apparently said that of all the arts, cinema is the most important to us. And it's worth asking why cinema of all the arts is going to be the most important for the Bolsheviks. Why would it be more important than literature? Why would it be more important than, um, than, than, than sculpture, than painting, than anything else? And there are a few reasons for this. You have to think that Russia at the time when the Bolsheviks seized power was a profoundly unevenly developed place. Um, it was economically and socially uneven. Cinema as a unique art form allowed the Bolsheviks to speak in the language of socialism, of communism, to deliver their messaging but it allowed them to do so while sidestepping the requisite need for things like literacy. Cinema famously speaks in a language that does not require words and so we had cinema serving as an ideological messaging system for for the Bolsheviks but there's also another layer to this which I guess is the the allegorical one. Cinema more so than any of the other arts is perhaps the great industrial art Part of the Bolshevik plan was to modernize socialist Russia, to proletarianize its workforce, to industrialize things. And cinema corresponded to that. Cinema was not one person sitting there with a pen and paper. It was not one person before, before the, the, the canvas. It was a whole team, a whole industry unto itself. So it was in that way an allegorical foil to what they were trying to do socially and politically. And so, especially in the, the mid-1920s, you had this amazing proliferation of collective creativity. The, the best known of the Soviet filmmakers was a guy called Sergei Eisenstein, whose films are familiar to many. The, the best known of these includes hey, the, the Battleship Temkin, Strike, Alexander Nevsky. These films are historical dramas that have the look and feel, to me at least, of action films. These things are riveting to watch. They dramatize the modernization of the socialist workforce. They dramatize the processes of revolution. They dramatize the energies, the violence, the carnage of insurrection. And they all do so in this new language, the language of cinema. Eisenstein didn't invent, but he created new ways of sequencing, of editing shots together in what we now call montage, a way of sequencing things together to tell stories, again, without that requisite need for words. And that is what was happening in Soviet socialist cinema in the years after revolution, which might be something like the, the, the primal scene for, for Marxism and cinema to properly interfuse together. Yeah, I, uh, that, that, that was an excellent background, especially the examples that you came uh, that you uh, gave us from Einstein. I'm a movie buff myself, and I've 
really enjoyed watching his films. And I'm sure a lot of people who even aren't familiar with Sergei Anzestan have seen how he has influenced other filmmakers, American filmmakers, especially that famous scene with uh, Pram, Baby's Pram, you know. <laughs> yeah. That appears yeah. in every other Hollywood film for exactly. the past few years. A, I think a few months ago I was watching Untouchables, Untouchables or Intouchables, I don't remember, Sean Connery. Untouchables, yeah, a few months ago for the second time and I I just completely had forgotten about that prime scene and it was in that film again as well. <laughs> That's it. Anytime yeah. you see an action sequence set on some stairs, oftentimes with a pram rolling down those stairs, that's Eisenstein's ghost haunting you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in this chapter, you, 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 you talk about surplus population. What do you mean by surplus population? And Great. how has the focus of cinema changed from, let's say, that proletariat to this surplus population? So surplus populations, um, Marxist cinema, cinema that is interested in Marx or cinema that's attracted to the same stuff that Marx was into is going to be thinking about social dynamics and how they shift and transform. And one of the key things of this is to look to potential sources of the collective embodiment of revolution. Now, Marx in Capital spoke about a thing that he called the general law of capitalist accumulation. And in that, he described the way that capital doesn't just exploit workers. It doesn't just produce working people to exploit. It generates the conditions of their exploitation. It does so by dispossessing a vast many persons. It it severs us from the land, from those things that we need to reproduce and to survive. But over time, capital also casts these potential workers off. Capital generates more potential workers than it ever needs to exploit at any given time. So it produces this thing called a surplus population, an extra population, those men, women, and children that capital has no capacity to or no interest in exploiting, those who are cast off and cast out of the workplace and set to fend for themselves. We can think about the surplus population in in a couple of different ways. Um, Within modern core states, Australia, England, the United States, you can think about the surplus population as the un and underemployed, those that live on the streets, those that have some sort of tenuous connection to employment gig work, for instance, we also think about surplus populations contained within the prison system. The the prison is a, a containment for surplus populations. But we should also think about this on a global scale. We think about what Mike Davis called planet of slums. We think about the ghettos that spread themselves across across the globe. We think about those vast many millions of of refugees and displaced persons that are scattered across the planetary terrain, all of these can be grouped together under the category of surplus population. What then does this have to do with cinema? If a certain version of Marxist cinema, and certainly the Bolshevik Soviet version of Marxist cinema is interested in the industrial worker, Marxist cinema now needs to contend with the fact that the vast many workers are without work and without industry. They are, in fact, members of this surplus population. And so these are the kind of figures, these are the kind of 
insurgent revolutionary movements, or if not movements, then just human embodiments that we see through a lot more recent cinema. And we can mark this shift as well. In the shift from a cinema, a Marxist cinema that depicts organized collective action in and around the workplace, often taking the form of strikes, such as in Eisenstein's great film, Strike, to a cinematic emphasis on riots, on disorganized collective explosions of seemingly spontaneous rage emanating not necessarily from those employed in a given workforce or given environment, but those cast off by capital, those who have, in Marx and Engels' famous phrase, nothing to lose but their chains. Can, can the example of, for example, that you, you, you talk about, you have third cinema and also feminist cinema of Chantal Ackerman, can, can these, some of the movies be considered uh, in this way that you just described? So I think the, 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 the Marxist value in thinking about third cinema and feminist cinema is that these two cinematic or filmic traditions, they ask us or insist that we expand our understanding of what the revolutionary class or the proletariat means, that it's not just white male factory workers of the first world. Um, it is the the peasants it is the the dis uh it is the dispossessed indigenous populations or, or, of third cinema it is the unpaid underpaid dominated and exploited labors undertaken by women both within and outside the home and that's what you get in you said um third cinema and feminist cinema so especially after the 1960s um you have in, in each of these two different traditions emphases on the different kinds of exploitation and domination that are taking place all under the under the, the invisible hand of capital. But you also have with that different kinds of insurgent or revolutionary movements emanating upwards from those, those quarters. I think in particular of the, the great third cinema masterpiece, Hour of the Furnaces. It's a long semi-documentary film it it takes its title hour of the the furnaces from from che guevara's final speech his message to the the tri-continental so it's already from the title alone speaking in a language of international solidarity with those who fall outside of the the, the circuits of modern modern capital um and then in terms of feminist cinema i'm always drawn to the works of and i write a bit about them in this in in this collection the the works of great feminist filmmaker chantal ackerman her films are incredibly perhaps even painfully intimate they take the domestic interior and they they emphasize and they play out in painstaking detail unpaid exploited dominated and ultimately feminized domestic labor um we we see this across her films and as they stretch out and go on a potential for violence for rebellion has a tendency to to creep in creep into these domestic interiors and um there are two movies that you particularly that you you spend a lot of let's say a big part of the article uh, discussing 
uh, us and Joker. So how can this new revolutionary potential be developed from surplus population? But but let's talk about those two films in, in the context of those two films. Or maybe Joker, because that's a movie I'm sure a lot of people have seen. Yeah. Okay, so in terms of films like Us and Joker, I think these come about as exemplary illustrations of a, a tendency that's happening in popular cinema at the moment. Um, popular films that are speaking in the language of interclass hostility. This doesn't always mean these films are revolutionary. It doesn't always mean they are on the right side of history. A film like Joker has many political and social question marks and even a few big red crosses next next to its title. And yet what I think it captures exemplarily is the fact that we are now living in a world, and it, this includes the core states, where whatever is left of the means of capitalist accumulation, it is surrounded on all sides by, by the surplus populations, by those who have been cast off, by those who capital has no interest in, no capacity to exploit, and therefore no way of meaningfully sustaining, certainly not with anything like human dignity. Joker speaks in that language, and I think it does so less with the actual Joker figure at the heart of its narrative, who is a, a fairly noxious, un unpleasant character for many reasons, but more so through the scenes that are taking place in the narrative background, in what we see taking place on the streets, the gathering of popular collective energies, the gathering of what has the appearance of an interracial coalition of if not working people, people who have fallen by the wayside of society at a moment here banding together to fight back. And they're doing so in the, the, the form of riot. They are rioting. Where I think a film like Joker and like these other films as well, where it seems to modify traditions of Marxist cinema is in taking the lessons of old school Soviet cinema, the lessons of Eisenstein, and in the first instance, swapping out some of the characters. So instead of an industrial workforce, instead of the army and the Tsarist regime, we have the surplus population, those who are un and underemployed. We have the police. We have Wall Street dudes. These are the enemies and these are the forces that are clashing in these films. But then with that updating of revolutionary characterology, that updating of the social agon, there's also an interesting and exciting updating of aesthetic form. In contemporary cinema, the form of montage seems to have changed once more. It's not necessarily the Eisensteinian sequencing of industrial events. Now it seems to try and capture the, the bewildering essence of the riot. And we think about how the vast majority of the world now experiences riots. If we are not on the streets at a given time, we're often seeing these things sequenced together through banks of news screens, where we see them as little videos appearing on our social media feed. We're seeing them in photos sent to us by comrades the world over. I think a film like Joker, and I think many of the films like it, are trying to find ways of incorporating that kind of 
proto proto montage proto marxist cinematic form into mainstream narrative cinema and for all my misgivings about some of joker i think that's something that it does and that in itself is exciting Mm. Uh, it's it's it sounds quite relevant, especially with the fact that we all have our cell phones and every now and cell phones, and we have all these different apps and this kind of prototype montage-like images of revolution from Hong Kong, Chile, France, Iran. Name it. It's I guess past few years we have we've been inundated with this kind of information, these kind of images of uh, workers, ordinary people taking to the street, uh, protesting the. Uh, economic let's, austerity measures by the governments imposed on them, or basically the protesting more uh, the conditions of life, or uh, the the the, uh, the the very low amount of wages they are paid in UK, for example, that you're there. Now. Absolutely, and I, I think that's one of the interesting things that I. I've not seen play out forcefully through cinema yet. It, it could be doing so. I, I, I could have missed things, but I, I imagine that it will. Um, again, thinking back to that title of the film, Hour of the Furnaces, it comes from a moment of tri-continental, i.e. international solidarity. If old school montage tended to have a focus on local, or at least in Eisenstein's formulation, national events, we tend to experience these things as global now in ways that are fairly unprecedented. The way that instantaneous visual communication allows us to leap all boundaries offers itself up to a cinematic imaginary that can speak in the language of revolution, but it can also speak perhaps in the language of internationalism. I think that's something we should be excited about. Mm, Yeah. And, uh, this was one of actually the most fascinating chapters in this book that I read in this book. And the reason I guess is that I'm also a movie fan when I was reading it, especially that, uh, the hour of the fairness, I'd seen the movie a long time ago. So it kind of, uh, tickled me to watch those movies again. And I'm sure when people read this chapter, they'll uh, not only learn from the chapter, but also be tempted to watch some of these films, because I guess that's what puts the argument into, into perspective for them. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Mark Steven. Uh, absolutely enjoyed listening to you talking about this chapter. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. For our next guest, I'm pleased to be joined by Joshua Clover. Joshua Clover is a professor of English at the University of California, Davis. Uh, he teaches critical and political theory in the Department of English and Comparative Literature. And he's here to talk to us about uh, his contribution to this book, uh, Chapter 6, which is called The Irreconcilable, Marx After Literature. Joshua, welcome to New Books Network. Marcia, thank you so much for having me and hello, everyone listening. Um, can you please first, to get started, it's customary to ask our guests to tell us a little about themselves. Can you tell us a little about yourself and how you became interested in uh, literary theory, and especially uh, Marxist literary theory? Um, that's a very challenging question to start <laughs> with. That might be the hardest question. Uh, you know, I er, at the early onset of my academic career, I was a, a poet. And as a political thinker or person or actor, I was very interested in revolutionary Marxist thought and traditions. Those two things didn't come together for me for a long time, but increasingly, you know, as you go on through your life, your interests, if you hold on to them, tend to start to overlap. And so eventually my sort of interest in Marxist 
frameworks for political thought and my interest in uh, poetics and literature more broadly uh, as a sort of formal or aesthetic practice came together. And then the next thing you know, you're a Marxist literary dude. Uh, let's talk about the chapter in the book. Uh, you talk about George Lukács' idea of novel as an exemplary literary form in the capitalist uh, era. But your argument is that this idea may not hold true anymore. Can you tell us more about what, what was his idea and why do you think it doesn't hold true and why? I can try. I, sh- I should warn you, it's sort of a habit of my thought that uh, everything tends to collapse together for me. So I, I'm worried that as soon as I start answering one of your questions, I'm going to end up sort of saying the whole thing. So you should feel free to cut me off if I'm going on. Just feel free to uh, talk too about far. it. It's... That's, that's, that's just sort of how it works for me. Yeah. So this all started, this chapter started when I was invited to take part in a centenary, so the 100th anniversary of Lou Hutch's famous book, Theory of the Novel. Uh, and, and we were all supposed to sort of respond to it. What's interesting is that Lou Hutch would become one of the most famous Marxist theorists or Marxist philosophers. But this book, trying to understand the historical role of the novel or place of the novel, was before he was really a a Marxist thinker, although he already was by instinct, at at least in part. And he's trying to think about the novel, you know, historically, right? So he goes through a long history, starting from the classical era, where he identifies what he calls epic literature, epic poetry or drama, or then eventually the novel. And how each historical epoch, uh, or you know what a Marxist might call each mode of production, uh, has its main or leading or orienting form of epic literature. And the orienting form for capitalist modernity, which is really just capitalist era, we don't even need to call it modernity, is is for him the novel. So that's where I start from, right? Is this Lukacian... I think that's the right adjective. This Lukacian account of why the novel becomes the leading form in a capitalism. And in some sense, this is just like empirical. In the capitalist era, the novel moves quite swiftly from being a novelty to being popular to being the dominant form. And it does not relinquish that position you know, for, for quite some time, even as various poetries and drama and other literary forms recede and become quite minor. So if we're going to stay with that sort of factual noticing or observation, people then start to notice, and I'm now racing us into the present, more or less, the recent past, people start to notice that the novel too seems to be losing its purchase as this dominant or orienting uh, sort of art form. And here in in the West, in the overdeveloped world, Obviously, people still buy and read novels, just as they still buy and read plays and poems, for that matter. Uh, But the novel no longer has that sense of being the form that gives form to the world. Now I'm actually quoting Lukács, who's going through the various historical uh, literary forms and their moments. He says, each of them is a means qualitatively quite heterogeneous from the others of giving form to the world. So he's really interested in giving form to the world. And the novel no longer seems able to do that for us. And so that is the situation that I am trying to think through in the chapter is why the novel no longer seems able to do that for us and what to sort of make of that fact. And if I can keep going, if that's okay with you. Of course, sure. Uh, um, um, 
you know, there's actually been no shortage of sort of death of the novel essays. Mm. And there's also been no shortage of the novels doing just fine. Thank you very much. Essays. We get, we get both of them quite regularly. And what these two sort of opposing, at least supposedly opposing positions share is their close attention to the character of the novel itself. And I think it's really important to remember that Lukács' formulation about the novel and capitalism has two variables. The form of the epic literature in question, in this case, the novel, and the form of the historical uh, historical epoch, in, in this case, the form of capitalism, its social, its social form. So my basic supposition, as simple as to be, I think, almost obvious, is what if the novel's loss of its status and its position among aesthetic forms is not a fact about the novel, but a fact about capitalism, which is the other variable in the equation, right? That the thing about the epoch to which the novel attuned itself that allowed it to be, to give form to that world, just no longer applies. And it's here I get to sort of a gentle rereading of the early Lukács in light of the later Lukács, which is to say in light of Marxist value theories and, and how they work. So here's my story, and I'm coming to the close of my self-narration here. Um, so, you know, for Lukács, the exemplary, the novel's exemplary, and the exemplary form of the novel is the Bildungsroman. The, you know, we now call it a coming-of-age story. That's not a great translation of, of the concept, but uh, it's, it's what we have. But in Lukács' account, it's the story of what he calls reconciliation that there's an individual, he calls them the problematic individual. And because of the problems they have with society, the problems society has with them, they sort of have to depart the sphere of society and transform themselves and become an adult or a completed person or actualized or whatever. And at that point, they can return and be reintegrated into society and into the social whole. And that's his sort of story of the of the story. That's his story of the exemplary trajectory of the novel. And my argument goes that that's a story about the reason that that goes with capital, the capitalist era is because uh, that is the logic of capitalism is that you no one is born uh, a submissive, beaten down, immiserated laborer. We're born humans uh, and we're not, and, and it takes a quite a process to transform us into the kinds of people who can simply be integrated into the labor market as, as participatory, even willing laborers producing surplus value for capital. Uh, so that, that process of reconciliation or internalization that Lukács narrates is the process of, of capital itself that we all have to be internalized into the labor market for capital's need to exploit more and more labor and generate more and more surplus value hence this novel of internalization of reconciliation of integrating someone into the social whole and becoming pro a productive member of society the most telling phrase imaginable uh, that is the story of the novel but it's also the story of capitalism until capitalism starts to leave behind that logic of internalization. So, and here I think is the part of the argument that 
if people are going to disagree or offer a dispute or a challenge, this is where it would be, right? Because this is a, a contested point. Uh, but the argument goes that capitalism in the present and its sustained crisis, and I think capitalism has been in a sustained crisis at a global level since the 1970s, unevenly, uh, that crisis is a crisis of internalization. It can no longer internalize labor in the same way that it used to. It no longer needs to. Productivity is so high. Automation is so high. Efficiencies are so high that we're not getting more and more people relative to the global population internalized at labor force. In fact, we're getting more and more people excluded from the later labor force, so-called surplus populations. And because capital no longer has this logic of internalization, on which it depends, uh, the novel, which remains the narrative of internalization of reconciliation, can no longer be the thing that represents uh, that activity. Not because the novel has failed in its representation, but because capitalism just doesn't do that thing the novel was built to represent anymore. Thank you for putting up with that. Um, that, that was an excellent description of the uh, of of this, this chapter. So I was wondering to put it into context for our listeners. I was wondering if you could give an example because you talk about eurozone, you talk about Greece, which is uh, and, and Europe is the Europe which was the let's say the birthplace of novels in a way. Yeah, I think that's important to think about the different levels of examples. So that's a, that's a really insightful question. The example I gave before is the single individual, right, who, who, who is now less likely to be internalized into the logic of capitalism. But of course, this doesn't only exist at the individual level. We've seen capitalism's ability to hold together far larger units start to wane. So, for example, Europe, which we think of in many regards as the home counties of capitalism and the home counties of the novel. And Lukács would insist that's scarcely coincidental. Uh, but we've seen Europe at one point in the not so distant past trying to unify around a capitalist logic, which is the European you know, monetary zone, the EU, so on. Uh, and, uh, and that a sort of a, uh, a formation of the logic of capital internalizing more and more into itself. So nations fall into supranational organizations that orchestrate the political economic uh, coherence of that form. But of course, the reverse thing has been happening for the last, how long has it been now? More than a decade. It turned out that uh, the that uh, Britain in Brexit was the first to get out of the EU, but the first to to make sort of more explicit moves in that direction was Greece after the, the massive global financial crisis of 2007, 2008, which is, of course, exactly a crisis of this value production of not being able to internalize labor. Uh, and at that moment, Greece starts to make moves to depart the, the EU. That hasn't happened yet. It's harder for Greece to do it. Obviously, Greece is a less economically powerful nation than than Britain is, it doesn't have its own currency, so it faces greater barriers. But it's a really useful example of the kind of crack up and externalization where increasingly we're going to start to see nations and other units of other sizes down to the individual that simply can't remain within the historical traditional logic of capitalism. And uh, so if 
novel doesn't have that exemplary power anymore. What are the other, let's say, literary or artistic forms that might, uh, I don't want to use the word replace novel, but might be more representative of the current status quo? I love this question because it's the one I get asked most frequently. I sort of give versions of this this chapter, it's an interesting topic for me, so I've given it as, a, as talks publicly, right? But also just in general, when I'm thinking through these big topics with people about art and, and capitalism and history, this comes up as a question. And, and, and the one you've asked, like, so what comes next? And let's, let's debate that. People often want to ask that, especially if they have their own preferred interest and and so they want to know if it's you know is it movies or streaming or video games or comic books that now are able to capture the spirit or the logic of capitalism and my perhaps counterintuitive answer is no it's none of those things i'm not trying to make an argument about the correct representation for capitalism i'm trying to make an argument that the thing we call capitalism the thing that we took to be representable in it, which was a certain social form, is in the midst of collapsing. Now, I don't mean capitalism is going to cheerfully vanish and we're all going to be free of it and just it's going to happen overnight without any effort. And that's great. I do not mean to present that story. At the same time, I want to remind everyone that every form of social organization that's ever existed has come to an end. Every single one. Capitalism will also come to an end. It's not clear to me why we would believe that end is in a thousand years as opposed to in 50. In fact, I think it's certain to end. The two possibilities are it ends in uh, dramatic and, and extended revolution that transforms how societies make and remake themselves or absolute catastrophic climate collapse. <laughs> Those are two very different paths, but either way, capitalism is going to end. So I think the question, oh, well, how can we represent this propositionally eternal, unchanging thing, which is capitalism? Now we need a new form to represent it for the next 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. Nah. Let's think about capitalism as something that one way or another is on its last legs. The question is not how to represent its logic, but maybe the question is how to represent something like transformation, right? The question of of what representational form might be adequate to massive, dangerous, systemic volatility is the right question. But maybe it's not. Maybe the right thing for us to do is to go out there and take part in the transformation and not worry about representing it. Go out there and fight the revolution. That's you and that's me and that's everyone who's listening. Let's not worry about representation for a while because the world depends on the transformation happening. When it happens, if we survive, people will find out a way to represent it, I promise. Professor Joshua Clover, thank you very much for your sharing your thoughts on New Books Network. It was such a pleasure to get a chance to say my thing with you, and you're very generous to give me that opportunity. Well, for the next part of this podcast, I'm honored to join Dr. Juliana Spar. She's a professor of English at Northeastern University. She's a poet and a scholar of 20th century literature. Dr. Spar's scholarly work is about literature's complicated role in political movements. And she's here to talk to us about a chapter, a chapter that she wrote in this book called Literature and State. Juliana, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
Um, to start with, can you just briefly tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in um, poetry and politics or the relation between literature and politics? Um, yeah, I'm a, I mean, I'm a poet and a scholar of contemporary poetry. Um, and so it kind of feels like there's an overlap around that. Um, but other than that, like how I became interested in it, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about the, the, the book chapter. Uh, you talk about two distinct, distinct Marxist aesthetic traditions, one which was promoted by the Soviet, uh, Lenin's uh, party literature, and the other one, art as a commodity. Can you talk about these two distinct uh, aesthetic traditions? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was trained as a literary scholar on this idea that all art's a commodity or that it's increasingly becoming commodified. Um, that capitalism is this all-encompassing system, that nothing escapes from it. Um, and it's an idea that was noticing how we live in a capitalist country um, in which art is bought and sold in the marketplace and then takes that as like constitutive of what art is, that art is this thing that's bought and sold, basically, um, in some form. And then there was also this kind of other model, which is like the Soviet model, that I didn't get much attention in graduate school um, but that had an argument that literature has a political role to play or has a role to play in like kind of like, you know, political movements. Um, and that was something that was interesting to me because partially because of the, my scholarship is in somewhat on that. And um, in this article, I kind of locate that in this lit article by Lenin called Party Organization and Party Literature. That's this very clear, concise, easy to read summation of this position. And like to Lenin, you know, the marketplace is not a freedom, but a constriction. And um, he has that very funny paragraph where he, at the end, where he manages to insult both sex work and anarchism at the same time, um, where he asks, you know, like, are you free in relation to your bourgeois publisher, Mr. Writer, um, in relation to your bourgeois public, which demands that you provide it with pornography and frames and paintings and prostitution as a supplement to sacred scenic art? This absolute freedom is a bourgeois or an anarchist phase, since as a world outlook, anarchism is a bourgeois philosophy turned inside out. Um, I mean, and that's kind of like, it's a, it's a polemic, right? That he's kind of arguing, and this might be what's the fun of that article, if it's fun. But um, basically, Lenin is kind of like, literature should represent the concerns of the party. And these two positions are not necessarily oppositional, um, and that both presume that arts are conscripted or defined by the market. Um, Lenin seems to think that it's, it's free if it's aligned with the party, um, but they don't look much beyond this moment of like distribution. And Marx though gives us this kind of like third model um, when he talks about Milton and he speaks of how Milton produced Paradise Lost in a way that a silkworm produces silk as expression of his own nature. Um, so to Marx, Milton's an unproductive worker at that moment. And Dave Beach has this really great book called Art and Value, where he does a really good job of explaining like the importance of this passage um, in which, you know, art has a certain individualism at its point of production where it doesn't function like a commodity. Um, that's the part where you exude it like a silkworm, <laughs> excuse silk, um, and where it's also independent of the nation state or the party. Um and it's only later, when, uh, as Mark goes on, like the next sentence, he even says that when Milton sold, you know, Paradise Lost for five pounds, um, that he, uh, only then did he become a dealer and a commodity. Um, and I was that this has been very interesting to me to kind of like think about what that means. I mean, in part, I'm also kind of interested in how 
and like a capitalist society's many arts have this unmarketplace dependence. I don't really quite know what you want to call it. So like I do a lot of work in poetry and poetry books are bought and sold through Amazon, right? Um, in the most minor of ways. Um, and much more of the art form or genre of poetry is distributed outside the marketplace, like through websites, through self-published projects, through projects supported by literary institutions. Um, a lot of it's given away for free. Um, and so much of its entry into this marketplace in which it has a very like minor role um, is only possible because of philanthropic or state support, um, which may, might take you back to Lenin. And that, that was kind of the terrain in which I was trying to understand or trying to think things through. And uh, you also talk about how Bolshevik turned literature into state literature and its legacy that lived on during the Cold War. Um, can you talk about that part as well? Yeah. Um, so the, the Bolsheviks were really aware that art or were convinced that art in particular literature had a role to play in the party. Um, and, you know, pr when the Russian revolution happens, there's basically as what happens in many revolutionary moments, it has like an art component and there's a series of, you know, decentralized, you know, anarchic um, art institutions and, coffee houses and, you know, all the, all the forms of art that kind of develop um, when you have these revolutionary moments. Um, and the Bolsheviks were interested in that in part, right, because that was their revolution in a certain sense, um, or part of it was. <laughs> and um, But once they got into power, they basically nationalized and centralized all of these art institutions. Sometimes they harassed them out of existence. Sometimes they incorporated them. And they prioritized certain forms of literary production. Like the, that's how we get the Soviet realist novel, right? Like that were really, really invested in that, especially by the 1930s. Um, and I should probably confess here that I'm not a Russian historian, but I'm someone that studies contemporary literature. And I kind of entered through, again, through this back door of being interested, like what is what are, what are these kinds of like, um, I think anarchic formations that support literature, what, 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 what do they do in some sense? And um so prior to this book, I was had done this historical study of, um, of state funding of literature in the United States. And in this, I was really interested in um, this post-World War II history where the CIA funds, um, does all this covert funding of literary production. And, um, you know, I trained again, I trained as an Americanist. So I was like looking at what the United States was funding, both internally and outside, like they, the United States put a lot of money into the funding, the development of African literature and English, for instance. Um, but um, as I was working on that project, I kept noticing this kind of like weird, um, um, I don't know what I would call it, like parallel dialogue or dance between this kinds of like Soviet propaganda and this United States propaganda or whatever term you want to use for this kind of like state use of art in some sense. And, um, so the, the, the Soviets projects need to get their way sooner, right? They got there after the revolution in a certain sense. And by the United, by the 1930s, they're funding a lot of literary production within the United States to the CPUSA. Um, and then after World War II, the United States kind of begins to catch up. And then you start to see these things like the Soviets would hold a conference on like world literature and peace or something like that, right? And then 
you know, and then the United States would hold a conference and this, there would be a magazine and then someone else would hold a magazine and there would be like a world tour and someone, you know, and so they were kind of like going back and forth. Um, and again, so like that really interested me because I'm convinced that you could still write a history of how like the Bolsheviks created United States literature, right? A kind of provocative history about how you couldn't have like so much of canonical U.S. literature without this kind of like Bolshevik history. And, and that's why I kind of went back and began to start to think about like, what are the details around it? Uh, I think a few months ago, I was listening to a lecture by Terry Egelton and he jokingly said that uh, you were talking about how United States funded the translation of a lot of American book, uh, American literature into Russian. And he was talking particularly about T.S. Eliot's Wasteland. And he just jokingly said that the only reason I can think of why CIA funded the translation of that book is to make Russian soldiers depressed by reading Wasteland. <laughs> and the uh, next thing I'm interested in talking about uh, is the relation between poetry, literature, and revolutions. Um, I'm sure you, you follow the news and you know what's going on around the world. I'm, I'm myself from Iran, and I followed in, has been following the news about Iran, and there street protests in the past of four or five months. And there have been a lot of kind of spontaneous poetry there's, there's, and that people have started writing normal, ordinary people who are not poets and taking to the streets. They write poetry, they write it on the walls. There's this quote that I, in your book that I really love. I would appreciate it if we could uh, kind of expand on that. Um, so you write that revolutions, moments when the nation-state form is briefly cracked open, often produce literature that are an expression of their own nature. Could you expand on that, please? I, mean, I think I was thinking about just exactly what you were talking about, right? In these revolutionary moments, there's often a, you know, a kind of interest in a, in a, in literature, and they have their own special forms of literature that kind of develop out of these moments. Um, and I was thinking here of like the literatures of the Rus again of the Russian Revolution before the Bolsheviks consolidated their power and began to turn it into like this kind of like Soviet realist novel. Um, but also the mid-century literatures of decolonization movements before they turn into the nation, the literature, like once the decolonization happens and the nation, the new nation gets formed, you see a lot of these poets that begin to enter into the government in these decolonization movements. Um, and I'm interested in the, the literature they wrote prior to that moment when they're not yet writing the state into existence. Um, Farther back, I think the Paris Commune gives us a really another kind of example of a kind of fissure in the nation state that kind of has a literature that develops out of it. And often these literatures are, are considered to be avant-garde or experimental, sometimes less so, but they often they often don't fit the kind of like um, like that that close relationship between the nation and literature establishes a series of national conventions about what literature can be. Um, and What's interesting to me about these, these moments, uh, the literatures that come out of these revolutionary moments is that they don't follow those conventions. Um, they're not really interested in them. They have something else they want to do. Um, and so I was just trying to kind of argue that, you know, like if we're interested in the relationship between Marxism and cultural production, that we might want to put more attention there rather than on these kinds of like odes to the worker that come out of this kind of Soviet tradition, uh, that kind of like Soviet realism um, in some form. And so if, I was looking at, and I end with just these two examples of this article. One of them's being, you know, Rimbaud's Season in Hell, which was written, you know, shortly after the Paris Commune that Rimbaud had a lot of interest in and may or may not have been on the barricades at. And then also um, Césaire's Notebook of a Return to My Native Land, which again was written before he became the kind of governmental official 
um, that he eventually becomes. And I, I see these works as both being kind of like um, contesting genre with, you know, new using other forms of language, um, invoking tradition to kind of reconfigure it, um, trying to think through this relationship between art and autonomy in kind of like really interesting ways. And I also think they're actually kind of really beautiful works. Uh, Dr. Juliana Spa, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For the next guest, I'm honored to have Professor Jasper, uh, Jasper Burns with us uh, uh, to talk about his chapter in this book called Poetry and Revolution. Uh, Dr. Burns is a lecturer in English at Berkeley University. He specializes in 20th century American literature with an emphasis on post-war poetry and poetics, Marxism, and political economy. Jasper, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for having me. So you have a very enticing chapter in the book called The Poetry and Revolution. Can you first tell us the didactic origins of poetry and how it relates to revolution or revolutionaries? Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't exactly say that poetry's origins are didactic. Um, but I I think that that uh, you know the didactic mode if we might call it that has been present in poetry from the very beginning and is present in, you know, any concept that we could have of, of poetry. And I think that the strongest revolutionary poems tend to be didactic or tend to kind of draw on the didactic powers of poetry um, because didactic poems engage social practice directly. Um, They tell you how to do things they, you know, engage with beekeeping and um, <clears throat> mathematics. And in the case of, say, Diane de Prima, the kind of practical matters of revolution. So um, I think that's the, that, that's the chief reason that they have this connection to revolution is that they are practical. Mm-hmm. Mm. And it, in this article, you're making this case a poetry pretends to make things happen. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean a lot of things. I mean, poetry pretends to make things happen in in any number of ways. Of course, this is a, you know, a kind of punning repost to Auden's idea that poetry makes nothing happen, which is, of course, true. Um, that poetry, by virtue of being poetry, is sort of removed from social practice and, and therefore ineffective. But what's interesting is that when you think about a lot of what we call poetry, and certainly a lot of what we call lyric poetry, um, and certainly all of what we call didactic poetry, it's often kind of sustained by the fiction of producing action. So in didactic poetry, you know, often somebody's being instructed uh, and this often becomes quite elaborate and sometimes, you know, produces actual things. And, and the didactic poems, in some sense, most didactic poems involve apostrophe, right? Um, and uh, that's to say address to, you know, to someone generally. Um, and, 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 and so the didactic mode is kind of apostrophic. And in that sense, it connects to other apostrophic poetry uh, like the ode, but also generally what um, is sometimes referred to as epideictic poetry, the poetry of praise and blame, and which is poetry which is about sort of 
um, articulating values, um, but it also in some sense is about kind of producing action, especially in a kind of revolutionary situation, a didactic poem actually can uh, produce effects because it, it engages, you know, it uses performative speech that actually becomes in that situation uh, felicitous, as you say, it becomes you know, people listen to the poem and they, they actually do it um, in some way. Of course, there's always very complex forms of mediation and poetry tends to imagine itself as without mediation. Uh, and, and in that sense, it's always uh, sort of illusory in its solution that it, that it proposes. And, and in this chapter, you talk about three developmental moments that each revolution has a process of social transformation goes through. So can you maybe discuss that as well? Yes. Well, I think there I'm speaking, you know, heuristically uh, somewhat. And I wouldn't want to, you know, I wouldn't want to be too schematic and story about revolution. And of course, it's a very complex thing. But if we're going to just be kind of heuristic and understanding all the different kinds of things that people talk about as, as revolution, which of course, you know, involves a lot of things that we might not think about as, as revolution. That's because after the fact, they've been shown to be not revolutionary at all, right? So what counts as a revolution to one person isn't, right? Or some pers- people might use it in particular contexts. And it's just a word like poetry that's been so abused that, you know, we have to be very careful um, uh, in, in using it. But so in some sense, I think that what about I, but I want to, say that any process of class struggle that becomes revolutionary and becomes a successful revolution has to, you know, has to spread and deepen and intensify. Uh, and we can think of that somewhat schematically. That's to say, you know, revolutions kind of start off as, as somewhat isolated struggles or uprisings that are concerned with very local uh, kinds of objectives, uh, and they're they're very kind of literal and practical in the kinds of things that they're trying to do, just fight the police and kind of win territory and space. But at a certain moment, um, <clears throat> you know, those those struggles once they become kind of insurrectionary, they take on an almost ineluctable symbolic dimension. Uh, they become expressive, and every and every kind of action becomes sort of. Some sort of symbolizes something, and that's part of its power. That's part of the kind of power. Rosa Luxemburg talks about these kinds of struggles as 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 becoming kind of transmitters, um, and and so so struggles which become. And sometimes this is thought of in the Marxist literature as a passage from the economic to the political. Um, but at that moment, you know, the the struggles become sort of they take on this symbolic dimension, which is often quite problematic. But you can think about, you know, the, in, during the George Floyd uprising, uh, the kind of burning of the third police precinct in Minneapolis. And I think that's the kind of moment in which it started to look like an insurrection. And I think that action kind of has a sort of, you know, a symbolic power. It, it, was, it, was, it was about more than just that police station, in a sense, even as much as it was about kind of eliminating a practical obstacle. So that would be kind of the second moment. And of course, you know, that's, but that's just about removing political power. And of, of course, the kind of objects there are often kind of uh, po- the sort of constituted political power. Uh, and that's not necessarily the whole of revolution or not even, you know, the main part of it, because a revolution for a communist needs to kind of 
a communist revolution would need to undo capitalism root and branch. And that is a process that, you know, for one, it's not an insurrection. It doesn't simply happen all at once. It's a process. Uh, and it has to kind of take in, you know, the totality of all it is. And it, it's not, you know, it's not, there's no, there's no palace to be stormed. Uh, it's just a sort of process that has to kind of emerge, uh, you know, act by act and kind of wave of acts that spreads. And so that's, you know, the third moment uh, in a certain sense. Uh, and, and, you know, those are like almost, we could almost think of them not as moments, but as dimensions, right? You know, they're, they're each a, a, for, a dimension of revolution, you know, depth, intensity, extension, right? And they're, they're important. Uh, but, I, you know, I think, yeah, this is this, in this context, I'm writing largely about literature and what I have to say about, you know, revolution is heuristic and I would refer readers to the other texts that I've written directly on these questions, uh, where I have to say. As a kind of a final question, how, how do you reinterpret Frederick Jameson's Three Horizons of Literature's uh, Political Unconscious? That you, that's an important part of your article as well. Right. right. Well, and that's, I mean, that's in, in some way the reason why I produced this heuristic kind of story of revolution that I'm backing away from slightly is because I wanted to connect it to Jameson's uh, kind of three levels of literary interpretation. Uh, and, 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 you know, there are many ways to account for this because it's very much a kind of dialectical and diffractive concept. But these are sort of three levels on which you can approach the literary object. You can approach it as kind of individual text, the level of the individual text. You can approach it at kind of level genre as such. You can also approach it to like think about the system of literature as a whole. Um, and all three of those levels, I think you can see how they connect to, in a sense, the levels of approach of the kind of object of revolution itself. Um, that revolution has to, you know, is cons consists of individual acts, just as literature consists of individual texts. Um, there are, you know, kind of these expressive moments where, you know, individual acts seem to, through the structures of, you know, just as literature does through the structures of genre, kind of express larger um, processes. Uh, so does revolution. But of course, you know, revolution has to be, has to be total and complete and has to totalize just as Jameson is trying to kind of totalize his conception of literature. And of course, he's trying to map it to his understanding of Marx's political economy, which also kind of proceeds dialectically and diffractively through those levels and in many different ways and in kind of varying scales that I don't do justice to here. Uh, but I think that, you know, that's, I, I think that, you know, Jameson's um, work and, you know, particularly uh, the political unconscious is, is just, you know, sort of a, a still unparalleled in terms of kind of theory of the relationship between the system of genre and, and mode of production. And I think poses questions that haven't, you know, uh, that aren't even being asked anymore in some way. So, mm. And do you see any similarity or bond between an ideal reader of poetry and a revolutionary? An ideal reader of... Uh, let's say a, a, a reader, a critical reader maybe, and a comrade or a revolutionary. Well, well I, think, I think that revolutionary poetry 
um, makes its readers into comrades sometimes. Um, and, and that's a very important aspect of what it does. But that is also, you know, as I, as I indicated before, there's a certain fiction to that. So if you think about um, Diane de Prima's Revolutionary Letters, which is in some sense, you know, on, itself unparalleled and on this terrain, um, it's constituted, you know, through this kind of address to other revolutionaries. But as many, you know, viewers <laughs> of poetry have, have, have made, it, made us understand, poetry is always kind of overheard and every address is indirect in a way. Um, and part of the point is to, you know, address itself to people who aren't comrades, who are enemies, perhaps to persuade them or perhaps to make them feel bad about themselves. So, you know, I think the poetry, revolutionary can, poetry can be addressed as much to comrades and to enemies. I think they're probably always two-sided in that respect because it is a poem. Of course, you know, when you put that poem and you put it on the streets and it's addressed either to, to comrades or not comrades, then, then it becomes a different question. But then we have to think about it, you know, situated in that context. We have to go down to the, the first level of Jameson's um, three levels. And, you know, there we're asking very, you know, different kinds of questions than we put it at the top. <laughs> Dr. Jasmine Burns, thank you very much for taking the time and sharing your thoughts on New Books Network. Thank you so much.